And welcome to Deus Life, an aspirational podcast. I'm Patrick, and here with me, as always, is... Hayden. And today we have an awesome guest, uh, Marco Pave. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Let's uh, get into a super cool conversation. Hell yeah. So, Marco, uh, we connected a few years ago on Instagram, and I'd like to shout out to Instagram because I've met so many cool people through Instagram DMs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it's it's cool to finally connect here. Uh, we've never actually spoken, uh, not text, but you're an incredibly uh, entertaining follow. And I, I think everybody should follow you on Instagram. So I guess we'll start with that. <laughs> That's dope. Uh, yeah. But without further ado, I would love to just start with your story. Um, make it as long or as brief as you want. Uh, sort of your superhero origin story here. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, I'm um, born and raised in North Memphis, Tennessee. Um you know, that's a that's the Bible belt. Uh I was born born a Muslim in, in that Bible belt. Um so that that was a, a weird a weird juxtaposition for me to be in. Um and so because around this time, um, uh, you know, I'm a child of nine eleven, a child of Katrina. So my, my era of, of being raised is just like a bunch of tragedy. But the nine eleven nine eleven tragedy was more so specific to me uh, because it, it made me be more of an outsider and more, realize, you know, how Islamophobic the the country is, especially being in the, in the space uh, that, like I said, it's the Bible Belt. So I felt super like an outsider. Um, but really, my love for music um, and creativity really like broke some of those barriers down. And I was able to, to to connect more with people because at the end of the day, I'm not, you know, I'm a I'm a black American. My folks from Mississippi. So, you know, we we just as American <clears throat> as, as as anybody in the country. Um, but that like I said, the religious identity uh made it made it be more difficult. Um so yeah, beyond yeah. Um yeah, beyond that, uh, I really started rapping in like third grade. So <laughs> it was like nice. Uh, a big deal uh, for me uh, when I tell people that they like, oh, you you knew what you wanted to do at, at eight or nine years old. I was like, yeah, like that's that's that was the that was Damn. the goal from from then. Um, and then obviously, you know, tons and tons of crap happened in between. That's interesting. Do you find it kind of a luxury to to have found exactly what you wanted to do at an early age? Uh, yeah, and in a certain way, it's, it's too. To me, it's twofold. It's like it is a luxury, but if you know what you want to do early on, it can put you into a weird position because you can get rigid and hyper focused on how you want it to happen, and it could it could mess up the the process and mess up the journey because you're so focused on results or you you, you know you really uh, tapped into what you want and and not really open to to ideas of how it can happen in other ways. Um, so I definitely think there is a luxury to it, but there is a caveat to it if you, you know, get too stuck into uh, rigid ideas. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm wondering because one of the things I really enjoy about following you on Instagram is that you really do kind of show the music industry and the like hustle of of making a career in music kind of the behind the scenes in a really honest way, mm-hmm. which not a lot of people are doing. Um, like how, how, what was your idea before you got into music? What was your idea of, of making music a career and, and what was the reality? Were they starkly different? I imagine. Uh, yeah, definitely. Very different. Um, so yeah, I would say, so we can go back to the, the third grade moment. Um, mm-hmm. so for me, third grade, this is what, 2001, 
Um, so yeah, this is an era of you know the rise of Southern hip hop. Uh, yeah, you know Project Pat, uh, one of Memphis' greatest rappers, shit, one yeah. of the greatest Southern rappers ever. Uh, you know, Mr. Don't Play is out. Like th- this, this vibe of music is coming. Um, <clears throat> and then for me, uh, it really opened up. Uh, so I, I have a, like a middle class background. Um, but it's lower middle class um, in in a lot of ways. Uh, so in 2003, when Kanye West hits the scene with uh, "Through the Wire," I was like, "Whoa, that's 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 okay. That's that's me. That's <laughs> that's the possibility nice. um, kind of vibe." So it really opened up this this world world for me. Um, and yeah, I kind of tried to s- stick to it uh, from that. And then as I got older, uh, I just really started reading more 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 books about the music industry as a kid my favorite movie was ray um mm. and so when i watched ray he was really about that business and so I, I i used that as motivation to to really see like okay it's not just about the music it's not just about you know uh entertainment it's about the full the full story um and so, yeah, as I got older, I really started to learn about how detrimental these deals were for artists and, you know, yeah. pe- people dying broke and, and, you know, their family's not getting none of the money and things like that. Um, so that kind of shifted my mindset towards uh, really learning about the music industry. And so by high school, I you know, people thought I was crazy, but I had the books, I had everything you need to know about the music industry, uh, all, all these different type of books that I was reading in, in high school to pre- prepare myself to, to be doing what I'm doing today. Nice. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. And you've been independent the whole time, right? Yeah, for sure. Wow. And do you, do you attribute that? Like, would you have changed that if you went back? Would you ever do a label deal? It's kind of the give and take of the label can give you a ton of exposure, but at what cost? Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't do it no, no other way, honestly, uh, other than being more patient with, with my own journey um, and not comparing. Uh, I tweeted the other day, um, basically, it, you foolish to compare yourself to somebody that compare your career to somebody that sold they sold. Like, <laughs> so it's like, yeah. you know, that's a, that's a heavy, heavy handed way of saying, just like focus on your own journey. Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember you had that tweet, um, independent, like chance the rapper. <laughs> that was hilarious. <laughs> I, I'm independent, but not like chance the rappers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I'm really, you know, from the mud with it. Yeah. 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 That's funny. That's I'm, interesting. I'm curious to understand a little bit more about sort of the dynamics of how those label deals work. Is mm-hmm. it something where they own the masters and you, uh, so how, like how, how, what are some of the ways that those are not necessarily the most artist friendly or pro artist deals? Absolutely. Great question. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's all about, so when you think about the recording industry, a record label, uh, they hire you, keyword hire, to record the songs that they that they own. So when you sign a record deal, you are signing to be an employee of that label to record their product. And so even if you and it's such an inception move now because back in the day, let's say the Ray Charles era, they were creating stars. They were, you know, taking people off the yeah. street or finding people in the Mississippi Delta on the on the 
sharecropping farm and giving them, you know, opportunity. Um, but now they expect you to build your career up, come to them, and then the same deal applies. Like we own your music that you, you know, that you create. And so, yes, they do own the masters. Um, and the music industry is re- really, really complicated and convoluted. So when you have a song, you have two sides to, to that song. You have the master side and you have the publishing side. And so uh, as a writer, if you, you know, me, let's say I'm a rapper, uh, for example. So I write my songs. Um, so I am a songwriter. I have the songwriting side. And then the publishing side is the side that that gets published. So there is basically 200 percent of of each song so you have 100 for publishing 100 for songwriting and then the label if you sign a, a label deal they're taking off the top they're taking 100 percent of the of the publishing most times and giving you a percentage uh of that so it's it's just all not in the interest of uh of the artist um yeah. Can you speak on the new generation? I think Jay-Z was the first one to sign a 360 deal, which is sort of the, the real death of the artist, where they take mm-hmm. everything, anything you ever do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if Jay signed one of those, but uh, I thought yeah. he signed one early on. Uh, like, uh, not not early on. I mean, like when he came back, like post Black Album, I thought he signed uh, one for like a few years or something. Was that was with, his his own, with his own with his own eight with his own I, well yeah probably with Rockefeller yeah. yeah so so that wasn't necessarily harmful to him <laughs> he gets a piece of it anyway yeah yeah uh but yeah, yeah. The, the 360 deal you know they came um around the rise of of the streaming the streaming era and and digital the digital download era when uh you know physical sales were were going dwindling all the way down and the music industry was crashing and scrambling trying to figure figure things out um, and you know, yeah, I think artists like like Jay Z, artists like Master P, um, even Ludacris, all these people who had like side endeavors where they were create or or, or Diddy, you know, creating yeah. their own uh, clothing lines and shoe brands and things like that. Um, so yeah, artists were able to do that, build all of that clout up from the label, and then go on and sell their uh, sell their merchandise. And so the label tried to get smart and say, okay, we want a piece you know, of, of, of all of that. Um, and the problem, the problem with the 360 deal is that, or the problem with record deals in general is when they give you $200,000, uh, you, they want $2 million back before, before you see, before you see money. So it's, it's not a, a equal deal. Um, because a 360 deal, in in the real business world or in the banking finance world, if if I give you a hundred thousand dollar loan, of course you have to pay me back a hundred percent. You have to pay me back from however you make your money. So that's essentially what a three sixty deal is. But the added caveat of of owning and and not having not making as much off of your music that's the problem with the 360 deal because if you like i said you get a loan from the bank you're not going to not pay them back off the money that you make yeah it i i think that's such an important point too the one that you made earlier which is labels did serve such an important purpose in the past like they really were star makers and hit makers and because they kind of owned the machine and operated the machine they could take an absolute nobody with talent 
and turn them into mm-hmm. a somebody. Now you're expected to come to them, especially in rap where it's such a regional thing. Like you're expected to come mm-hmm. to them with a huge regional audience and their idea is, okay, we'll take you global or something like that. Right. But you mm-hmm. pretty much do all the work and then they take a cut of it just because a lot of musicians don't want to deal with any of the bureaucracy or paperwork or anything like that. So, so there's all yep. these different people that just do all of the stuff that's so seemingly difficult, but like then there's people like Marco who just take the time to learn <laughs> how to do all the paperwork <laughs> yeah. and, and you know, you're going to benefit immensely from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I want to ask you about Memphis specifically. I know you mentioned that sort of first big wave of Memphis music with like three, six mafia and them. Um, was, was the energy similar? It, it seems like there's been sort of a second resurgence of Memphis as like a hip hop hotspot with young Dolph and uh, like block boy JB mm-hmm. at that huge moment, uh, maybe a year mm-hmm. or two ago. Mm-hmm. Is the energy similar? I mean, yeah, it's like, it's crazy now. Like, yeah. It's so it's it's more uh well I, I don't think you can compete with the 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 era that gave birth to Three Six Mafia, mm-hmm. but there are more people with more platforms with more opportunities to to do what they're doing in Memphis. Memphis is like super super hot right now. You got uh, Duke Deuce, you got Young Dolph, you got Gotti still yeah. going, Moneybag Yo. Uh, Black Youngster, Key Glock. I like that album. You, You're right. These guys are all so hot right like, now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that Dolph record's so, awesome, by the way. That one that just came out. It's crazy. Yeah. 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 I just went running to that the other day, just like really bumping, oh, bumping yeah. it. So, uh, yeah. Memphis got so much energy uh, right now. Um, but see, Memphis is is a is a weird a weird place uh, to to be in. Like most of these artists, you know, are actively not in the city they have to leave memphis in order to you know develop and become who who they need to become um so basically la is the second leg of memphis when when you really start to uh break it breaking out um because there's no industry here in that way so when you got an album coming out you're not interviewing on there's no no platforms for you to interview on. There's no publications here. There's no you know booking agents. Like it's it's really just from the mud, and you you go out into the world from 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 Memphis. Um, That's interesting. So if there's not much of an industry, how, how do you build that regional buzz? Is it just through shows or through? Because I don't know. Yeah, I guess how do you build that regional buzz? Are there like local radio stations that that are kind of local hit makers? Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a, a mix of that. Uh, social media has definitely helped, yeah. um, and then as far as you know, the industry that we do have um, would be you know the Yo Gotti's, the the CMG camps, and the, the Paper Route Empires. Um, so those are now like you know if you if you coming up and you make that style of rap, like you definitely trying to get Yo Gotti to notice you. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. You you def you definitely trying to get signed by by CMG. You definitely trying to be in that in that camp uh, because it, it is a, a it is a catapult. It is a it's gonna blast you up into stardom in a way that you couldn't have been able to do it by yourself. Um, so yeah, Gotti is a part of that. Gotcha. But outside of that, if you don't make that type of style of music, or if you don't get a big enough buzz to get his attention. Uh, yeah, you pretty much just just on your own. It's, just trying so to it's, it it's yeah. just about hustling to get those cosigns, I guess, and, and get people to kind of yeah. like give you that boost. 
Mm-hmm. Interesting. There's, I, I have some general rap questions that I, I want to ask. So I, I have a follow up on the on the Memphis piece. Oh, uh, so I'm curious. Um, I know that Southern rap is definitely growing, and it's it's had a it's had a boom since uh, since I guess the turn of turn of the millennium. And one of the cities that's really sort of come to prominence as far as Southern rap goes is Atlanta. And I'm curious, as somebody from Memphis, how do people in the Southern rap world view Atlanta? Is Atlanta sort of considered near equal to Los Angeles in terms of having industry? and media connects and stuff along those lines how do you guys how do you see Atlanta how do other people in in uh, in your world see it see the city of Atlanta as far as opportunities go that's a great great question uh um yeah so Atlanta is like you know it's like the the big brother that does all the cool shit (laughs) and you like I I love my big brother but you know I also fucking hate my big brother like And so it's, it's kind of like that. And so, um, but Memphis, Memphis and Atlanta were, were in, in a lot of ways on the same trajectory, um, both in the musical landscape, but also in the political landscape. So if we go back, you know, uh, to the, 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 the fifties and the sixties, you know, Memphis and Atlanta, these, you know, Martin Luther King is from Atlanta. Uh, he comes to Memphis dies in memphis memphis is one of these places that shows you know racism over anything else um and so atlanta they had a campaign in the 70s when they when they first got their black mayor in the 70s uh that it basically no white no black just green that was their whole Mm. that was their whole mentality and so Memphis, on the other hand, we're still reeling to this day, still reeling from the the, the murder, assassination of, of, of Martin Luther King. We don't get a black mayor to the 90s, 20 years after Atlanta already decided that, you know, obviously racism still exists there, but it's the it's the it's about the ideology. Um, and so mm-hmm. that, you know, allow Atlanta to catapult in a different kind of way and become more of a black mecca. Um for, 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 for black people. Um, there are more black people in Memphis. Memphis is 65% black. Um, then, you know, than Atlanta, but, uh, or there, there's a larger black population in, in Memphis comparatively to Atlanta. Um, that's interesting about Atlanta. Actually, I was there for a few days once. Uh, I spent some time like with my first job, we had a call center there and I spent some time at the call center and it, it kind of dovetails with your point. It, regardless of like what ethnicity people were, they were all bought into the culture. All bought in. Exactly. So yeah. And then, so fast forward into the music side, um, even in the nineties. So Memphis created that sound. Memphis created the, 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 the trap sound that you hear now that's popularized. Memphis created that. And then, so Atlanta, being the, the place that it is, it is the popularizer is going to take something that is regionally hot and put it onto a pedestal. Um, and you know, that's how you get, you know, Lil John and the East side boys doing a, a watered down version of what three, six mafia <laughs> so was already doing. Atlanta's the Drake of the South. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> in, in, in a lot of ways, if, if, you, if you're thinking about it from a strictly pop, pop music perspective it is is definitely that yeah. uh but also atlanta does they have their culture creators they have their you know gucci mains young jeezy's you know 21 savage they have their yeah. people who are of 
Atlanta in and of itself. They 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 create culture. Um, but Atlanta as the place as for music business is definitely the 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 bubblegum uh put it out. Um, it's the shiny version of, of anything that gets created in the South. It is crazy how long, like I, it used to kind of shift, like this city would be hot. This city would be hot. This city would be hot. Atlanta has been at the forefront of like popular hip hop for, I swear, like 20 years at this point. Like, mm-hmm. It's crazy. It just keeps it like I, I assumed they were originating a lot of these trends, but uh, it's interesting that note you make that it's sort of Drakeifying different trends, taking hot regional things that are bubbling up and then presenting them to a wider audience. Yeah, because uh, again, they they position themselves in a great way because um, to to the other point um, that that was made about Atlanta being like a LA or New York, like. Of the South, it is definitely that. And so you have all these regional people that go to Atlanta, like even Memphis. Uh, so we had this group uh, called the Trap House um, in, in Memphis. Uh, from they was, they was booming for a long time. Like Dolph got his start there. Don Tripp got his start there. Drummer Boy got his start there. Like nice. all these people. And that whole, that whole camp, everybody moved and went to Atlanta. So they basically took Atlanta, took in our entire, you know, well, not entire, but our uh, a big chunk of our music industry. And it was they were based in Atlanta now. Um, and so the sound, the 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 vibes, the, all the Memphis vibes that we brought there were incorporated into Atlanta. And then that's how you have this huge rise and in, in rise in Atlanta sound being different because you think about Go back and listen to all the early 2000s or mid-2000s Atlanta music. That beast was trash. Oh, that was as such fuck. trash. It's all garage band presets. <laughs> oh, my God. Dude, exactly. like to be a beat maker back then? Oh, my God. Let me just pull in bell sound number one. <laughs> it's such trash. Exactly. Whatever the stock exactly. drum machine that comes with the software. Yep. Like, oh, my God. Yep. Yeah, it's That's exactly what that was on. And so yeah. they got better. By you know incorporating more uh, of the of the grit of a place like Memphis and people who were coming to Atlanta to really try to get their leg up and, and make some shape. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's kind of a melting pot over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's funny. It's hip hop is in many ways to me. I, I didn't really nerd out on hip hop until like I got to college. Like. I, like I'm a white kid from the suburbs. It wasn't really necessarily presented to me, even though I'm kind of the core audience now <laughs> in many uh-huh. ways. Um, but it is like there's such an anthropology to it. And, and in order to really appreciate everything, you have to really like understand the history. And it's so referential, like as a genre, uh-huh. everything's a fucking yep. reference and regional slang. And like, oh, my God, uh-huh. it's like to really appreciate it like that. There's like Jay-Z's Decoded. I know he had that book. I didn't read it, but I know that's kind of the aspect is kind of like de- uh-huh. decoding lines. Um, I know for me, what is now called genius, what used to be called rap genius, was yep. invaluable. Uh, that was the uh-huh. best idea for a website ever. But do you think that's part of what makes hip hop so compelling is it's like incredibly referential folk music that just kind of is so intertwined with the cultural history of America? 
Absolutely. It's 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 the sociology of of the people. Like hip hop is is that. Like you if you want to learn about what people are thinking, what people are going through, what people are feeling, you know, listen to the uh, listen to a rapper. Mm-hmm. Listen to a hot regional rapper. They're they're representative of not only themselves but of you know, many many people that 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 are like them, that are from where they're from and they're trying to tell stories to you know, basically validate what they felt growing up. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely like that, and it's so popularized because of, of that. And people can buy into these different regions. They can buy into. Uh, they can visit a place without actually having to go. That's such an important point, um, and I kind of want to dovetail it into a couple other questions because these are things that have always been on my mind. I mean, it, it's. Part of the enjoyment for hip-hop for me exactly is that it's like I haven't been to these places and I don't interact with a lot of people from these places generally and it's like you really get to learn a way of life and learn about people and it's like you know if I listen to like a fun poppy rock song I don't really learn anything you know what I mean Mm -hmm. there's that aspect but um, yeah one of the questions that I wanted to really ask is like what's the role of authenticity then in rap because I I think there is such a I'll give you an example of the opposite of authenticity. So do you remember when Post Malone had a huge song called Rockstar? Mm-hmm. And he had 21 Savage on it, who is very authentic. But Post mm-hmm. Malone himself, a line in the chorus, talked about pulling up on the block and shooting a machine gun. Post Malone is mm-hmm. not pulling up on anyone's block and shooting any machine yeah, gun. <laughs> this is, this yeah. is not happening, and if he did, we would definitely know about it. Um, exactly. Like... But nobody jumps on him and criticizes him or anything because it's just entertainment, right? But I don't know if I'm necessarily okay with that. Like, that kind of extreme yeah. imagery, unless you kind of have that in your life or you have that in your surroundings and there's some sort of background there, like, it's it's weird that someone like him is able to use that line. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Post Malone is, is an inter- interesting, you know, one. one. Uh, because he, you know, he basically utilizing and benefiting from whiteness in a lot of ways um, as far as becoming a huge, huge star. But also he has been one to say, you know, I don't really fuck with hip hop like that. Um, You know, Post Malone was a folk singer before, before he became this rapper with tattoos on his face, drinking lean Uh every night like that. So his whole brand, you know, he he is still a very machine made music industry uh, artist. Um, They made him they made him be who that who he is. And so, yeah, to definitely to do a song with 21 Savage, you the label probably said, yeah, you probably need to, you know, spice it up. Yeah. Make it make it make it a little more aggressive. Yeah. and so, yeah, to, to, to go to your other question about the authenticity, you know, it's very important for for hip hop, but it's also very, very convoluted because, you know, when you get the majors involved, if they're trying to sell a particular style, a particular way of, of, of music, they want you to be on the, the, the black death train or selling selling the violence like, yeah, you know, you get the tropes, you can get. Yeah, all of that. You 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 buy if you buy into that as artists, um, is less authentic, authentic, uh, and more about selling a, a, a narrative that's not necessarily something that you do uh, every day. 
Yeah, and I don't necessarily have a problem if it's like, I guess Ice Cube is an interesting example too, because he wasn't in gangs or anything as far as I know. He was just sort of writing about the world around him and kind of Mm -hmm. playing pretend, Mm -hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. That seems like a middle ground between a Twenty One Savage and a Post Malone is an Ice Cube, right? It's like yeah, I've always absolutely. wondered where we draw that line of like uh, rap is such a personal thing because you're speaking, mm-hmm. right? But then there's also an argument that I can totally get behind, which is that I'm making entertaining music. I don't care if it's true or not. It's like making a movie or making a show. Like John Hamm exactly. isn't actually an ad executive. It doesn't make him a worse mm-hmm. actor. I guess. Mm-hmm. So it's absolutely that. It's entertainment at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, my 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 question uh, to that is, you know, it's the labels control a lot of things. The media controls a lot of things. So it can definitely be entertaining and be entertainment. But uh, to me, which are the point where okay, what other types of entertainment can we have? What other uh, what other content can we put into the yeah. into the entertainment? Because uh, definitely a lot of the stuff is not autobiographical that that rappers are, are rapping about. They're telling stories. They're they're trying to invoke a feeling mostly. Um, and I think black artists are not allowed to to do that more more oftentimes than not. That's why Post Malone can you know get on a song like that and then get on a song uh like the the main song from Into the Spider-Verse. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Great movie but, by the way. <laughs> excellent movie, yeah. but he, he he's able to do that cuz he's he's white. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's funny. Yeah, they didn't so, ask 21 Savage to to sing. <laughs> absolutely. And so yeah, that's that's the conundrum that black artists face like it's either you know, you did, if you rapping about something, you did kill all those people uh, and you did those things uh, or if you didn't do it, you're not real and you're not authentic. Like, you know, Rick Ross faced a lot of backlash for for his storyline and it's just like, he's a, Rick Ross is a character. It's a, it's a character that you can buy into and, and, and pick, pick your motivations from. Yeah, and I'm totally okay with that. Like, it's funny. Rick Ross is a great example because he's a great rapper, so it works. I think that's very yeah. critical. <laughs> like, if Rick yeah, Ross yeah. was a shitty rapper with terrible verses, then everybody would make fun of him and nobody would have a problem with it. Yep, yep. Yeah, that's interesting. So I guess that's the role of authenticity. It's like it can be a, a real added aspect. And I find myself gravitating more towards authentic rappers. Mm-hmm. But Mm-hmm. That that goes into the other question because you this, we we've kind of touched on sort of the difference between being a white or black artist in hip hop. What what do you think the role is? Because here's a question I've always wondered. Like I've always felt my my most of my favorite rap. I would say my favorite rapper is Vince Staples, and Vince Staples actually has a lot mm-hmm. of lines directed toward having a large white fan base because he does, and a lot of rappers do. Um, mm-hmm. But what's the role? It's like. I, I guess, like, I've always figured I can learn as much about the culture. I, I can kind of study it and make sure I'm appreciating the music. I'm a musician as well, like like a hobbyist musician, so I, I can listen to beats and I can really understand what's happening and I can really understand the difference between beat makers and that aspect as well. Like, is does that make it okay for me to listen to the N-word over and over? Like, that's kind of my, my question. Like, I obviously yeah. am not going to sing along, but is there sort of a role for a white audience? Um, I mean, to, to, to see and understand and learn and, and be less of a consumer and be more of a, of a, of a student. 
um, about it. There, there are a lot, there are many, many folks that, you know, are consumers and they're, they're trying to control and, uh, yeah, control what, what artists make and how they make, make stuff that's cool for us, make stuff that we like. And so, uh, when it becomes that the, the consumerism creates the narrative of what gets created. And so when you look at an artist like Vince Staples, who has more of an organic, organic fan base that is going to listen to to the lyrics, you know, these these are type of artists that have more of a fan base that is trying to listen and trying to understand. Um, but, yeah, it's just like um, the to that point about listening to the N word It's like, uh, I mean, we you know, we witness everything else that that negatively happens in this country to black people every every single day um so just you know hearing that shouldn't be <laughs> shouldn't be an issue in in a lot of ways um yeah. so yeah it's more about more about understanding the stories and the struggles of of these artists and of their communities and not making them be uh, a, a lot of problems is that you know white people listen to these black artists individual artists and they assume that everyone is like them and they assume mm-hmm. that everyone is fine and all the black people that they know have made it uh-huh. uh, and don't have any problems. Yeah. Yeah. It stems. Uh, did you ever see the Senorita video? Vince Stable Senorita video? I think so. Yeah. It's basically, it's, it's showing like the plight of him growing up in poverty in Compton and, and some other like uh-huh. characters from around there. And then it zooms out and it's this little white kid watching it on TV. And it's sort of like a metaphor for what a lot of this white okay. audience is, which is sort of like poverty tourism, I guess. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. It's, 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 it's consuming the black pain uh, on a consistent basis. And so again, it's more about learning and also just understanding, like, what what, is, what could they feel like? What could it feel like to be born in poverty and then be be rich, famous, and have, have white people listening to your music? When you were in poverty, you didn't see white people yeah. because, of seg- because of segregation or because of racism or because of anything like that. How does that feel as a person? Not as an artist, like as a, as a person, like that they can create survivor's guilt, they can cre- create depression, anxiety, like uh, all of these things that artists deal with, um, just just to become, you know, who who they are. Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to ask you what most people get wrong about about the music industry. Um, I think we've covered a lot of, of that, but do you have any sort of uh, other points you want to make on that? Because I think people have no understanding of how the music industry works. Yeah, it's you know uh, the the music industry um, they they just don't um, know how it works, and uh, I think people don't understand like how how an artist gets signed, uh, what that you know again what that means, what that entails. Um, like I could I could post on my me as an independent artist who's been independent for the past you know seven years. I could post on my social media right now. I just signed the deal with blah, blah, blah. And people will go crazy. <laughs> they would love it. Regardless would, of whether would, it's true or not. Yeah. Regardless of if it's true or not. Like I could literally be just a photo of me at a boardroom table signing a, a piece of white paper and people would be like, wow, that's what's up. That's a great point. Even though that that doesn't necessarily grant you any level of success. 
It don't. Yeah. It doesn't. It's just like it's something to be be excited for. So people still don't understand that getting signed is not not the thing to be doing. Um, yeah. And then you know, not understanding the 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 machine that's behind these artists. So when you you know you sign, you got to present your music to like a team, and people tell you like, oh, we you know we don't like this song. You're 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 not aggressive enough on it. Like let's get some more of that. So you basically have the editor for your music. And so when you come to the label and then a lot of these labels, well, majority 99% of the labels have all white staffs, mm-hmm. except for that, except for the A&R, maybe most A&Rs are, are black and they get away with that because they want them to be more connected to, you know, the people to the streets and everything like that. But everybody else from creative director to director of publicity, to publicist, to in-house whatever everybody's white and you presenting your black art to all of these white just graduated college students that's funny oh that's interesting now uh, i want to talk about sort of your um music creation process so i guess we'll start with kind of like how do you pick beats do you, do you produce your own stuff Oh, no, I don't. Uh, but yeah, the beat picking, you know, it's a, it's an art. Uh, you know, I, I think we should start calling, you know, beat picking the, the, the curation of your album. Yeah, um, having good taste. Because, you're, yeah, you're curating your, your sound. Um, so I had to learn how to, you know, pick pick better beats and, and, and pick beats that uh, fit my voice and, and pick beats that I can see myself going a different different way on. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, it's a huge collaboration process for me. Like I work with producers, they send me stuff. Uh, a lot of times, you know, producers make their beats and they name their beats. And so whatever they name that beat, I might go off of that mm. for inspiration. Um, so yeah, all, all things like that. Like just last night I was in the studio, uh, with one of my frequent collaborators. He was just making beats and I was writing uh, lines and, and verses to to the beats that he was he was making. So it's just like a super cool uh, collaborative process. Do you get sick of just getting sent uh, Young Thug type beat, Kanye type? Beat? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, yeah, it depends. Yeah, but most like I said, most of the people that I, I work with, they know me, they know my sound, they know what I want. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, we we're, we're getting to the you know Marco Pave type Marco Pave type beat. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, we get into that vibe. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's interesting. And then um, what, what's the writing process like? Are you always just kind of writing and then you put it together depending on the song? Or do you write to the beat specifically? I mostly write to the beat. Um, I've always found it to be weird to try to, like, write a song and then try to find a beat that goes to it because um, it, it just never fits exactly right. Yeah. Um but yeah, so I'm usually writing to to the beats, um, and yeah, I sit with it for maybe you know a day or so. Um, but a lot of times now, I've been practicing this a lot, um, where I just go off of inspiration and off the vibe. And so we're in the studio, and the beat beat is pulled up, and if I like it in the first five seconds, I like put put it loaded in Pro Tools. I'm gonna rap like not writing nothing not you know thinking about it over over too much uh and things like that so i've done that with a couple songs uh my single sacrifice that was like that um yeah uh yeah so it'll just be basically straight inspiration in in a a freestyle in a way um 
And then, you know, I go in if I like start mumbling or start like saying, saying words that don't make sense. I'll go back in and, and feel that in with real words. But the the inspiration is, is freestyle. Yeah. Do you go back and listen to old tracks? Like my old track? Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about your old stuff? Mostly, I, I'm I'm cool with yeah. it. it. Most most of my old stuff. Um, I, I heard some stuff from like 20, 2013 um, the other day uh, on my band camp, um, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh shit, I I could really fucking rap." Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, it, it's usually like that. And I heard some stuff from like twenty ten when I was in high school still, uh, and I was like fuck, I was really rapping. Like, I could really rap. Like, so that's, that's usually what I, I think when I, you know, listen to some old stuff. If I was, like, 17 or 18 years old, like, you know, wow, I had had something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm curious, uh, now that we're in a world uh, with streaming and you've got the Spotify's and the Apple Music's and the YouTube sort of as an artist in today's sort of internet-dominated content-sharing world, um, what do you see as the best investments or the best platforms sort of as you're as you're crafting launch strategies and stuff along those lines? How what do you what do you sort of see on the landscape and what do you, what is your assessment of, I guess, exactly those the shop of the Spotify's, the Apple Music's and the YouTube Music's and I guess Tencent is, is in there as well. And then you've got uh, there's a whole bunch of other platforms like that. Yeah, um, it's, 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 it's still the wild, wild west in a lot of ways. Like this is, you know, we, we're still in a lawless music industry, um, but these platforms are more so establishing themselves as, as the oligarchy in, the, in a lot of ways. And so we, we're, follow, we're just following their lead um, until something else, something else comes along. Um, but they are, are vital in, the, in this landscape. Um, the problem with this landscape is that it doesn't it's still not as beneficial to the artists um, as it is to the labels and to the streaming services themselves. Um, and so if you think about a company like like Spotify, um, you know, they're, they're paying what they pay artists and that allows them to continue to grow and grow and grow and grow their platform. So in a way, that's kind of. Uh, inception kind of way of thinking, investing back into artists, um, but it also just provides them with more more resources to to do things like podcast or do things like uh, uh, yeah, yeah, buying all the podcasts up. So it's 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 a crazy landscape to be in. Uh, artists everywhere, uh, BMIs, uh, the the performer rights organizations are you know demanding that these streaming services pay more to artists. Um, so we can have a bigger, bigger, bigger paychecks to come through royalties. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's all crazy. Um, the first, I guess the first raise that we do get, uh, we'll, we'll probably set the tone for how, how these streaming services decide to, to go forward. Um, cause if they are, you know, demanded to, to pay more, they, they might change their business models a lot. Interesting. And you're in Memphis. What is the COVID shutdown protocol over there? Are things open now? Um, things are like, yeah, some of it is open. Yeah, restaurants are open, uh, masks uh, required and things like that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's still not, you know, obviously not back to any kind of normal. Um, and this might be just the new normal forever. But it took a while for, you know, Memphis to really like get get on board and follow 
the 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 rules and the protocols like you still had people just out hanging out mm-hmm. you know they had to shut the river river down for a while because it was just thousands of people out there and the cases had spiked um so yeah finally people are now you know taking it more serious and understanding like you know what it is um but yeah memphis is a city full of full of essential workers so even if people are practicing social distancing in the in the social setting um so many people have to go to places like fedex and these warehouses and different things like that and, and be at risk to uh to the virus interesting yeah i'm thinking because when i was coming up playing music the story was there's no money left in record sales you don't get too much money in streams it's all about building up some sort of popularity and then touring and selling merch now if touring mm-hmm. and selling merch if we're still a couple years from that being back to normal like i guess what do you what do you see filling that revenue gap is it just using Ooh. publicity to start <laughs> podcasts or i don't know something yeah, i don't know man you got to pray to god <laughs> and uh you know, do some do some ancestor worship and uh, you know all of that whatever you can do to to generate um money for yourself that's what you got to do because yeah definitely but i definitely think live streaming um uh, concerts is going to be be a thing um uh my, my my thought on that is trying to figure out how to make it more exclusive for individual places uh because the difficulty of you know, doing a live stream, it's the the idea of it is that it's available to everyone. And so how many times can you perform your music um, on on a live stream platform where everyone's supposed to see it? Mm-hmm. Um, you make it you can you may can do that, you know, once a quarter, uh and, and it not be like weird. Um, because the idea of a tour is that you go to exclusive places, you go to Memphis and then you go to Jackson and then you go to Atlanta. Like those are segments of the fans that get to see you individually. So you never get tired of, you know, doing your music. Um, so yeah, trying to figure out how to make live stream more exclusive. Definitely merch is going to have to be, you gotta, you gotta put out merch. You gotta become, you know, uh, astute at shipping, um, and, and, and getting people their product on time. Um, but yeah, definitely just all, all types of different, whatever creative ways um, you can think about how to make money through this is, is, is vital. Cause for me, I've never, I've never depended on uh, mute money uh, from music uh, to, to, to survive. So it's, you, you, you can't be in that mindset. All righty. Uh, so I have two questions. I'm going to ask them one at a time. The first one is I'm curious, going back to when you were in third grade and you recognized that you had this affinity for rap and hip hop. And then as you were go- growing up and you were doing more research and reading the books, um, I'm curious if there were any stories or history about hip hop or the music industry that sort of helped solidify your stance and your approach moving forward. So there might be a story about, oh, yeah, I read this story about one time there was this guy who did this thing differently and it worked out in a different way. Are there any sort of those foundational stories or lessons or historical things that you picked up along the way that have really influenced who you are and how you how you approach the music business today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think this was this more of a colloquialism that everybody, well, everybody should know if you're a Southern rapper, um, just the story of Master P um, and him, you know, selling all these records out the trunk and, and really, you know, they, they selling half a million records out the trunk, like really 
doing numbers that, that people have never seen before. Um, and he started getting these label deal offers. And, you know, basically he's saying, like, if this label is willing to give me a million, how much do they really see me is, is worth? And that's that's the question that you have to ask yourself. Um, and so not being desperate to take the million uh, million dollars paid off in the end for somebody like Master P who was worth over 200, 200 million because he, he, he bet on himself. And, and even, you know, as a person who, who could have used that million dollars up front, he, he said, Nope, uh, if they offer me a million, they have to see, you know, 20. Amazing. That makes total sense. Uh, and so then I guess that dovetails into my second question, which is in your experience and you've lived this, you live in this world. And so you have a profoundly close connection with the industry. What is your opinion on Takashi six, <laughs> nine? Uh, I mean, okay. So I have multiple opinions. I feel like the guys that allowed him to infiltrate, they should be ashamed of themselves. Is this nine? Uh, is this nine tray? Yes. Yep. They, they should be completely ashamed of themselves. Um, uh, and then also that is what the police do a lot. Police always have an informant or a, a, a spy or some somebody that's portraying to be something that they're not, that you have to be aware of as a person that is, is living the street life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all he is. He's a, he's a, a created a player yeah. <laughs> from, from, the CIA 2K. Um, <laughs> That's his real set. And, yep. <laughs> and so, yeah, this this basically what it is. He was he's he's hired to to infiltrate this this community and all those folks. You know, he he's they memeified him being being a snitch. But all these nine trade dudes, they locked up for real. Yeah, they they in jail. They not getting out. Like they, those are real people. Uh, behind that and he gets to come out they let him out after he you know said and did what he was supposed to do and now he shit he probably gonna get some more people caught up so it's just like and then that's just a good point and then what do you think about his sort of i mean one of the big things that was really fascinating uh at least from my vantage point about takashi was that he was sort of live streaming and playing out a lot of very public and very sort of violent and escalating beefs with people from different cities. And he was sort of leveraging some of the credibility that he was sort of able to pretend he had by infiltrating and joining nine tray. Um, do you see that being a playbook that other people will follow? Cause it seemed like the public and the fans and everybody across the United States and the world was just eating that up. I mean, kids were eating. It. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but now nah, you're right, though. People did. People did start buying into it. But that's that's the problem with social media and, and the media, um, because it, if you allow something to become big enough, it will grow legs of its own. Um, it's just like the episode of, of Black Mirror when the uh, when the animation was running for president. Yeah. Yeah. And. Then the fucking thing won, <laughs> and it was like, and it was like, oh shit! And so that's that's like Takashi Six Nine. Yeah, it's it's you 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 create a, a big enough nuisance um, where you because the nuisance is no morals, no standard, nothing. We break all the codes. It's just like Donald Trump 
you break every code that was made and then you go against people who have morals and who have codes and you win because it's just like with the Democrats, they don't want to not be uh, seen as respectful or as presidential or or anything like that. And Donald Trump just doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. So he, he wins. And so Takashi is the same way. Like if I say fuck snitching, I'm a snitch. That literally is inception. It disrupts the whole mentality of, of 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 people from from the street life, and so now he can get away with anything because it's he threw away the moral code. Yeah, I, the 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 parallel to Trump in the election is it's, so important. It's, it's, I've heard that said before. I forget. Yeah. Who, did you tell me that? I, I told you that. Yeah, yeah. I, and I heard it. I, there's a there's a famous radio DJ who called Donald Trump the Takashi Six Nine like, president. They're the or, same or, person. Yeah, they're just doing a, different they're things. They're the same yeah. character playing in different arenas. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's like we created a monster. Yeah, I, I, that kind of get back. It gets back to the voyeurism aspect of some of the rap audiences where, you know, people are watching this. Oh, ha 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 snitching. Ha ha ha. It's sort of just like yep, another yep. TikTok video to them. But he's like exactly. ruining real lives, like people serving mm-hmm. life. You know? Yeah. Yep. That's craziness. Did you have any other Takashi questions, Aiden? Uh, no. <laughs> I'm glad no, you brought I'm, that I mean, up. I'm just as, as, from, from, a, from afar, I'm just fascinated by like this kid, Daniel Hernandez, grew up in Bushwick, and then now he's Takashi 6ix9ine. And it's really interesting seeing and hearing about and sort of getting to document and see along the way the getting to getting the number six, nine tattooed on his body 200 times. And some of the, so just the, the playbook and how that all went down and then doing that sort of the, 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 I guess it was in midtown Manhattan. There was that episode where there was the, uh, the strong armed robbery with an intimidation fee, uh, piece against somebody who would sort of disrespect or he had perceived to disrespect him when he was in Houston or something along those lines yeah. and seeing this all play out live and in living color on Instagram is, is fascinating to me. It kind of just highlights major issues with the entertainment industrial complex it, it, it yeah. does it does and, and, oh and to answer the other part of your question i don't think this is a, a playbook that many more people can nah, can do because unless, unless you have exactly unless you have the the backing of the fbi and the cia like takashi 69 does you you know you're probably going to die like yeah. <laughs> it's not yeah. you know it's not a playbook that that you should that you should try to try to run if think about it for example soldier boy he tried to run that playbook uh now look at him mm-hmm. he's in jail still right now yeah like he 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 ran that playbook on social media. We was uh, uh, when, uh Drake. Everybody was Drake. <laughs> Everybody was doing it. You didn't uh, buy the soldier pods. What was he selling? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, I didn't. That is one of the craziest videos I've ever seen. That I ever show people though is the Soldier Boy home invasion post interview. It's ah, uh, that's fucking hilarious. That yeah. has to be one of the most ridiculous videos ever recorded <laughs> Hayden is looking at me confused so I need to show him this video after so it was an inside yeah. job huh <laughs> it's so funny uh, but that that is a ridiculous uh, video uh, and I guess it actually happened I guess it's verified evidence so everybody should look up the soldier boy home invasion just type that into YouTube and prepare to have your mind blown um, <laughs> Marco there's something we have to do um, we're coming up on the uh, hour mark here um, there's something we have to do since it's a rap focused podcast which is um, I want to hear your top five active rappers Ooh, you can't put yourself in okay. there though uh, yeah so let's say I mean Rick Ross is definitely in nice. there he is he always delivers <laughs> yeah 
is for sure. Yeah. Uh, hmm. Five is tough. It's like ten is a better number. <laughs> uh, I mean, I put two chains in there too. Yeah. Uh, he makes albums. Yeah, definitely. Uh, now my uh, this is a new favorite. Um, he didn't popped out. Uh, Larry June. Hmm. Uh, from San Francisco. I fuck with Larry June. Uh, super dope. Um, who else? Uh, I, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I don't. This is no particular order because I, I mess yeah. with Dolph. I was going to uh, say Dolph is top uh, of mind. <laughs> yeah, I like. Uh, I, I mess with Gotti. I go go listen to him a whole lot. Yeah, for motivation. Um. Uh, I mean, I like the City Girls a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They, they super dope. Yeah. Uh, it was this funny ass video. Um on Twitter the other day, basically they, they put, they spliced Mary, Mary, uh, one of their songs, the gospel song and the city girls rapping over the beat. <laughs> it's like super funny. They're, they're the best uh, of that style. I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so now nah, they super dope. Yeah. Uh, and then shoot. I think you have one more. One more. Uh, Hmm. I go to. You want me to go and give you some time? No, I'm gonna just check my uh, Spotify. So oh, you got it. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna do mine while who you're checking. You? Yeah, Pat, who are your top five? All right, so we're going active. So again, I I kind of am the same way as Marco. I could sense where I wish I could name like twenty because there's just so many fucking interesting people. Like hip hop is the genre that never disappoints. There's always interesting things happening, um, and everybody's so different that it's hard to like rank, but. Uh, my number one, since he's still active, I have to say Jay Z. He's still my favorite rapper. Um, yeah, yeah. Number two, I have to go. And Jay Z coming on Spotify this year is the only good thing that happened in 2020. Like, yeah. <laughs> it really improved my life. <laughs> um, I'd have to put Vince Staples second. Uh, and then it becomes really tough because I just want to shout out order, people right? that. This doesn't have to be in order. Yeah. Right? Oh, I got my fifth. I got my fifth. All right, who's okay, your fifth? do it. Uh, future yeah you know what future doesn't get enough credit in my opinion he's he's a real pioneer yeah like future makes mouth noises that no one else makes Mm -hmm. yeah i i I was gonna put him and young thug together in one spot because they both are similar in the sense that they like truly pioneer for sure in terms of like what a rap song is or what a rap verse is like you never know what's gonna happen when they're featured um so I guess they'll, uh, I'll, I'll use a spot for Young Thug anyway because I think he's been killing it forever. Um, yeah. And then I'll just shout out a couple people that I don't think get enough attention. One is Cupcake. Cupcake is mm. a phenomenal rapper. I know she got popular doing gimmicky sex stuff, but like, she's a phenomenal rapper. And every single mm. that comes out is is like goddamn amazing. So shout out to Cupcake. I know she was going to retire because she was um, kind of depressed from like looking back on her early stuff, but keep going cupcake. Um, mm. and the other one that I don't think gets enough credit is T Grizzly. Ooh, yeah. T Grizzly. Dope. Dude, ah, so man, he, he be rapping his ass off and telling so many stories. Yeah. And yeah, he, he definitely, yeah. And the record he did with uh little Dirk is still one of my favorite records and yeah, no one ever yeah. talks about it, but it's such an amazing record. And it's like so much insight into kind of like, 
different cultural hotbeds interacting each other. It's like them coming to each other's cities and them like showing each other a good time. And it's like, ah, it's so good. Yeah. All right. I have a follow up for both of you guys now that you've done your list of your top five active rappers. Who are each of your guilty pleasure listens where you draw inspiration, but you (laughs) might not want to admit it? Specifically rap. No, outside of rap. Oh, I don't have any guilty pleasures. Okay, even inside I'm of rap. I'm a teen then. girl right. at any, heart, anybody, <laughs> anybody inside or outside of hip-hop or rap that you think is doing interesting things that is would that you would qualify as a guilty pleasure because if you were hanging out with a bunch okay. of your friends and you said, oh, yeah, I fuck with them, they'd go, what the fuck? That's terrible. But at the same uh, time, there are people out there that are doing interesting things that people might be able to take inspiration from. Marco, do you want to go first? I have an answer. Ooh, uh, I'm trying to think. I don't really... I'll go first and give you some time. So uh, not yeah. that people would say like, oh, that's trash, but uh, Charlie XCX is one of my favorite songwriters, and I think uh, everything she does gets more interesting. Like, And that last record was like... She just moves more into the future with every record, and she tries to intentionally push the envelope and try to find out like what can pop music be in the future. Uh, and Charlie lives in L.A., so if you're listening, can we please be friends? Um, but anyway, all right, Marco, you're up. Uh, I don't really, let's see. I don't feel guilty about any of this. Yeah. So yeah. this isn't guilty because you have to, you have to feel bad, but is there anybody sort of outside of the sort of the standard, the standard lanes that you think is interesting or doing really novel stuff? Oh, so many, uh, hmm. specifically, I think it's some really amazing rappers. I, I'm happy to see Lil Durk on the number one song. I think he deserves that. He's been at it forever. Uh, and I think he's great. Um, anyone else like that? Nah, I just wanted to shout out T Grizzly. All right. T Grizzly. <laughs> T Grizzly, though. <laughs> I love him. Marco, you got one? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm drawing a blank, y'all. Uh, well, then let's use this time uh, to do something um, that's the most important thing, which is uh, tell us about your new single. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, my new single, Dirty Bands, is dropping September 1st. Uh, it'll be available on all platforms. Uh, so definitely check that out. It's a super, super cool song. It's the lead single to my new EP, yeah. uh, Cross Crossroads, um, that I recorded during my you know first year as an artist in residence at Georgetown. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just super, super excited about it. It tells a story. You know, on first listen... Uh, or second or third or fourth listen, you might not catch the the vibe of the story, um, but definitely know that I'm always telling a story in a song, no matter how sonic how it sounds sonically. Um, so that's that's that vibe. Uh, so definitely check it out and and see if you can figure out the the, the vibe and purpose and metaphor of of the dirty bands. Nice. And and when this is published, that song is out now. It's out. It's out. I'm speaking to the audience of the published episode right now. It's, yeah. It's past September first and that song is live. Go 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 check it out. We'll put it in the show notes. Marco, where can uh where can people find out more about you? Where can people follow up and sort of follow along with your journey? Uh absolutely. Uh follow me on all social media at King of Marco. Uh K I N G O F M A R C O. Uh, kingofmarco.com uh, if you have inquiries and want to talk and things like that yeah I'm you know active on, on everything I check my email all the time uh, so yeah definitely social media is a good good place to connect with me yeah and I can personally say that Marco is a, a, a excellent follow on Instagram one of my favorite follows especially the grill content as of late 
those ribs have been outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I've been back home getting, getting to it. Yeah. Uh, that's some amazing food porn on that grill. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's up. All right, Marco. Well, this has been a blast. I'll go ahead and take us out, but thank you so much. We'd love to have you on. Really, again. really appreciate it, Marco. Thank you so much, man. Absolutely. Thank you. Awesome. Well, this has been Deus Life, an aspirational podcast, and we'll see you all next time. Peace. <laughs>